Tell your fortune, sir. The future predicted, your life foretold. Oh, oh, no thanks. Don't you want to know if you're going to be happy? Well, I'm, I'm happy right now, thanks. You're from Yorkshire. The reading's free for Yorkshiremen. Oh, now you're talking. All right, then. Oh, fascinating. I can see a man, a most remarkable man. How did you meet him? You're supposed to tell me. I see the future. Tell me the past. When did your lives cross? It's sort of complicated. I joined a forum to talk about missing episodes. Long story. Hmm. But what led you to become a podcaster? All sorts of things. Being a fan, coming from Yorkshire and liking the sound of my own voice. This podcast of yours, something who, what choices led you there? There was a choice, because I was already appearing on the Grumpcast. But there was this other idea. Some friends on the forum. Paul, he's called. Paul Morris? He writes audio dramas for Big Finish. Very rarely mentions them. I'm on a podcast. As a guest? This will be your own podcast, Richard. With at least several listeners. People know the Grumpcast. It's fun. So stop it. Your life could have gone one way or the other. What made you decide? I just did. But when was the moment? When did you choose? It won't take long. Just click right. Chat with Paul. I'm clicking left. If you don't like it, hang up. If you click right, you'll have a podcast, not just a guest slot. You think I'm so useless. Oh, I know why you want to be a guest on a Grumpcast. Because you think you'll get downloaded by someone with lots of money and your whole life will change. Well, let me tell you, media executives don't need guest hosts. Yeah, well, they haven't heard me. You clicked left. But what if you clicked right? What then? What's that? What's on my back? Make the choice again, Richard, and change your mind. Click right. I'm clicking. Well, let me tell you, media executives don't need guests. Yeah, suppose you're right. Click right and change the world. Hello and welcome to Something Who episode 24. After we gave you a virus episode a few weeks ago, today we're bringing you our Britain in Lockdown special with Third Doctor Story, Invasion of the Dinosaurs and Doctor Light Story, Turn Left. So there's one bit of business from a previous episode to finish off. To coincide with our Jeremy Bentham episode, I bought a second-hand version of his book, Doctor Who, The Early Years. So I'm giving it away to a listener who can answer this question. What fruit did Jeremy say Patrick Troughton bounced against the wall in Power of the Daleks? If you send the answer to our email address, somethingwho at gmx.us, I'll pick randomly one person to receive the book. And I'll put the email address in the notes that accompany this episode on your podcast app. So today we've got a full house of contributors. So hello, Simon. Hello, Richard. Hello, everyone. 
Uh, hello, Giles. Hello, everybody. Uh, hello, Paul. Good evening. <laughs> and returning to the podcast is Andrew Ireland, creator of the University of. Uh, well, let's try that again. <laughs> creator, <laughs> creator of the University of Central Lancashire's remake of Mission to the Unknown. Hello, Andrew, and welcome back. Hello, everyone. Good to be back. Excellent. It's also a year since our first podcast of Something Who. Yeah, it only feels like about 12 months to me. Wow, time has <laughs> flown. <laughs> but anyway, down to business. Invasion of the Dinosaurs to start off with. So that's the one with the terrible puppets. But of course, it's, it, it's much more than that. Season 11, it's Towards the End of Pertwee, written by Malcolm Hulk, directed by Paddy Russell. And it's got some great elements in it. Deserted City, Double Agents, an underground bunker. Giles, this was your pick. Do you want to tell us uh, why you picked it? I guess I picked it just because living in central London and occasionally cycling to nearly abandoned supermarkets in the middle of the city in order to combine my mandatory exercise hour with getting to shopping, I was cycling back past the Tower of London you know, one, one morning and thought, bloody hell, this is just like Invasion of the Dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> So that was, yes, that was the inspiration, if you can call it that. Very good. So who wants to start us off with some thoughts about Invasion of the Dinosaurs? I was going to be bursting with things to say if I'd actually written them in your notes down while I was watching it. <laughs> I was very excited. It was much better than I remembered it being, which is not to say I ever thought it was a duffer. I think even from the first time... I think when I was younger, the, the fan opinion... We've talked about these fan opinions before, haven't we? Hmm. Yeah, the gunfight has been the worst story ever and all that sort of thing. <laughs> I think it was very badly thought of, but not not in my experience. But this time I was very impressed with it. I'm not going to say anything about the um, deserted London aspects. I just think as a six-part Doctor Who story, it's one of the tightest I've seen. Hmm. Um, hmm. That's what I want to say. Hmm. The six parts have a reputation for being oddly constructed, don't they? They tend to either hmm. have a, a slump in the middle or a bit of a, a bump at the beginning or end. But here... Malcolm Hulk has, I've tempted to say for once, he's got enough material to fill his six parts. He's, he's got more ideas than he needs, really. Mm. And he paces them out. He keeps bringing in new ideas as we go along. There's no need for any f filler um, or padding. There's no <laughs> none of this locking up, running down corridors, escaping, getting captured again stuff. It's just paces its mysteries, keeps adding new mysteries rather than quicker than it solves the existing ones and i just found it a thoroughly entertaining six times 25 minutes so mm. that's what i think okay andrew i think it's got a lot going for it i think the thing which sticks in my mind the most is mike yates because i think i'd almost go as far as saying that what happens to him and his character in this episode or set of episodes is uh, like the first time in the series, really, we got a real, genuinely sort of surprising twist of a character mm. that we've known up until that point. Yeah. Mm. So I think mm. it's multi-layered and, you know, his character's definitely like three-dimensional and probably one of the first examples you can think of in Doctor Who of a character going through that kind of arc, if you like, which continues into Planet of the Spiders 2. So... For that, I think it's very memorable. And also the setting, I think it's eerie, atmospheric, and it sells the concept of a deserted London well. Hmm. So, yeah, good thumbs up from me. 
I think what's interesting about that Mike Yates reveal is that it, it works particularly well because we've known him for so long and it, and it really pays off five years of this unit family. By mm. this point, I think some people were uh, starting to criticise the cosiness of the unit years, how <laughs> it's all got a bit ill-disciplined and long-haired compared to season seven action heroics. But mm -hmm. the, because we've got to know these as people rather than just as soldiers and plot devices, it really does hit home, doesn't it, when one of them turns out to have opinions and moral conflict. Mm. I was going to ask. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask, I mean, does it come out of um, nowhere for Mike, or has he shown these sorts of instincts before? I was thinking the Green Death would have been a good place for him to surface if he has shown any sort of ecological tendencies. Does anyone remember? Yeah, he's a, he's a sort of perennial full guy almost, isn't he? He's always getting knocked out and captured, and then he gets brainwashed in the Green Death, and... In the Green Death, he was surrounded by ecological issues, mm. wasn't he? So maybe yeah. that, that sowed some seeds. That's even been before that in Day of the Daleks, when he takes a glass of wine from Joe Grant, doesn't he? Snuffles that down. <laughs> still still spends some sandwiches. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think people used to, You've reminded me of something there, because... I don't remember him commenting specifically on the ecological side in of the Green Death. I don't remember him um, mm. expressing yeah. his sympathies with no. with the people at the Nuthatch. That's it's, that's all Joe Grant's side of the story. But people used to say, fans used to read this as uh, his actions in Invasion of Dinosaurs are a follow-on from him being brainwashed by the computer in Green Death. But I don't think there's any. Is there, are there any hints? Is there anything remotely explicit about that? I think that left him. That probably left. If he's, someone's been brainwashed, that might leave them susceptible to influences, and someone might have got inside his head and sold him this this golden future and, and the golden age. Yeah. Well, maybe. It, it, I think it cheapens it to think that. Really, I think mm -hmm. it's much better for him as a character to think that he actually made his own decision. Mm -hmm. You know, and for his own reasons got sort of sidetracked or swept along by all that Operation Golden Age stuff. Mm. I, th I think he did. When it was first introduced in episode two, and in fact I am going to now mention something that's relevant to the theme, he's commenting on how the deserted Lon in the deserted London, yeah. the sounds of birds, nature's returning, the bird oh, songs. Yes. The, yeah, yeah. And it's a nice little moment. And, and it's quite subtly <laughs> yeah. written because if you don't know where it's going, Mm. You not it's not a big red flag that Mike there's something up with Mike you just think yes interesting mm. perspective what a thoughtful intelligent mm. chap mm. and of course we're all thinking that at the moment aren't we yeah mm. I mean I, I'm thinking perhaps um, Terence Dix might have stuck something in one of his you know monster books or something like that or maybe one of the novelizations to suggest a link up but I, I can't see it in the story that could that mm. it could explain couldn't it so rather than being a complete invention by fans perhaps it's um yeah, from the ancillary material. Yes, it feels like something that was stuck at the back of my mind, that there was more of an explicit link. I must have mm. picked it up from somewhere. Mm. But as Andrew says, it, if it's there at all, I'd rather it was, um, wasn't was used as a, a blanket explanation for Mike. I much prefer mm. the idea that he's did mm. have this wistful soul hiding down there. And it's interesting that actually through the course of the story he's dragged in in it bit by bit, isn't it? I mean, to start off with, he's he's acting from the best of motives and he's just, you know, disabling the the thing to stop the the dinosaur being sent back. And then bit by bit he gets dragged further and further into the mire by 
by the other people in the organization mm. yeah tragic in a way mm. that's drama conflict mm. <laughs> yeah i always enjoyed what well, i saw this story when it was broadcast and one of my favorite memories was that tyrannosaurus being chained down in the aircraft mm. hangar and then menacing sarah and smashing up the office that was that was really good that was very memorable um it worked much better when you just saw parts of the dinosaurs rather than standing up and wobbling along streets but the, mm. the, it's not too bad at all if that if that doesn't stand up to screen there are other things like i don't know whether they called it this but the time scoop and all of those time effects those are very clever mm. Um, there's plenty of action and excitement and good cliffhangers and the one that really had me on my toes all the way through it was would anyone at the unit base dare to ask Sarah Jane to make a cup of tea or a cup of coffee (laughs) (laughs) and in the end the RT operator had to make everyone around a tea but uh, Mm. it's a cracking um, Liz Slade and Sarah Jane story as well she's really strong all the Mm. way throughout that story yeah uh, she does it she does a great job I think the scenes where she, where uh, like you say, where the where the T Rex is um, is chained down in that warehouse place, whatever it is, I think that they work really well. And actually, even though people take lots of pop shots at the um, the poor old dinosaurs, you know, there's some nice close ups there of like the mm. dinosaur lying there with his eyes closed, opening and closing again. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's well done. And like you say, it works better when you see parts of the dinosaurs or glimpses mm-hmm. and they're not waddling along but they're still um, but yeah it's, it's ambitious and it just mm-hmm. does it you know it, it just tells the story and it gets on with it and it, it, yeah. it's it's big and bold which is good and Doctor Who is always good when it's big and bold it doesn't mm-hmm. always quite reach what it's trying to do but in a way that mm-hmm. doesn't matter because mm-hmm. you know it's reaching for it so you can yeah. you can reward and savour the ambition mm-hmm. I think we, you can see why they thought it was worth a stab. Is, is the idea that um, Barry Letts um, was impressed with the Drashigs from Carnival of Monsters and, and was persuaded that uh, you could scale that up and do proper dinosaurs? At- oh, that's yes, I think so. That rings a bell that that he was sold on the idea that they could do, they could pull this off. But these aren't glove puppets, are they? No, so I'm not I mean, quite sure. Maybe it wasn't the Drashigs, but I mean it. it that could explain why it's not a success yeah, yeah, yeah. the per- per- person who yeah. was really good at glove puppets told him, yeah, we can do dinosaurs, and then did it in a completely different way. Well, the thing is, you know, and it's, it's, got, it's got this reputation, but I th- personally, you know, as, as something of a dinosaur nerd, I, I, think, they're, I think they're not bad, with the, with the one exception of the, um, um, of the T-Rex, yeah. when, yeah. It's, when it's yeah. vertical, when it's yes. kind of doing its thing. I think the Brontosaurus yeah, yeah. is pretty That's good, right. the Stegosaurus is pretty good, the, yeah. Triceratops is a bit ropey, but um, but that's all what everybody considered. always says, though, isn't it? And it's and mm. it, I was looking out for this time because that's such a something you go into the story knowing that the mm. T Rex mm. is the one with the problem. And it's it seems to be worse constructed as a model, maybe because it's more is being asked of it. But it's mm. it looks less convincing. The others, yeah, it mm. just looks like it's been made by somebody a completely different person from whoever made the. Yeah. More successful models. Oh, and um, has anyone mentioned the fact that when they cut to the close-up, there's a, there's a second puppet for the close-ups of the head, which is right. approximately a thousand times better than which the, is so much better, the full-size yes. one. Yeah. And, and they use it so sparingly. It's, um, well, there you go. Hmm. I, I try to avoid going on and on about the production problems, but um, yeah. it makes the same mistakes every story, doesn't it?
the target novelization had that had those brilliant illustrations. I think I think it's Pertwee fighting off the pterodactyl, mm, yeah. and then disappointingly the pterodactyl in the in the workshop, and then down in the the tube station. <laughs> that wasn't. It just doesn't live up to those fantastic no. bits of artwork. And it doesn't mm. say cuck clack either, does it? Exactly. <laughs> I was just going to say it's funny. There were some directorial choices that you would think when they knew what they were working with because it, it comes very close to you know and i know i know there's all this people fantasize occasionally about redoing it with cg dinosaurs and so on and so forth and i don't mm. think it's necessary i mean a lot of the i think the puppets stand mm. up as creatures most of them apart from yeah. you know obviously there have been changes in how we've seen dinos since since then and probably t-rex has been the most affected of, of the ones that we get in here in terms of how how it looks like a completely different creature from what a realistic T-Rex of 1973 would have looked like. But I do think there's there's some odd directorial choices where you just think, oh, if you just shot that slightly differently, you could have avoided that awkward shot. I mean, there's no reason why we have to see the T-Rex staggering to its feet, as it were. In other words, being hauled up right by the puppeteer with the <laughs> with a <the laughs> stick or whatever. <laughs> it makes one wistful for the, the T-Rex mm. from the Silurians, doesn't it? <laughs> which not many other things in life do. Mm. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I, I still think they should have a go at, um, at improving the effects for the Blu-ray if they can scrape together some money somehow. I think the last mm. thing I heard anyone say, and I, don't, I can't remember if it was anyone official, said they were un- they'd, if they did it, they'd be unlikely to use CGI and they'd try and use models, just better models, mm. so that it would still be in keeping with what you could have done in 1973, which is yeah. fair enough. Other people have said that the problem with it is that there's so much intermixing of the models with live-action elements, and they'd have to be rot- all mm. those shots have to be rotoscoped before you could even think about replacing the dinosaurs. And I was looking mm. out for that, and while it's true... They're, they are the minority of the shots. There's only it's not that much. Maybe yeah, t- maybe 10% of the of shots, dinosaur shots, that mm. most have DSO people in the foreground. So mm. I don't think it's impossible. But it's easy for me to say that because mm. I haven't got the faintest idea what will be involved. <laughs> <laughs> but as a complete layman, I don't, I don't think it's impossible. Mm. And I'll, I'll pay a small premium to see it done nicely. Because I think the story deserves it. Mm. If they've got the um, separate original filmed elements, then it's fairly straightforward, isn't it? Like you say, if they've got the... It depends how they did it, you know, if they did it in post-production mm. or, or did it live in the studio, but if they've got, like, the actors in front of, like, a green screen or a yellow screen, which is what I tended to use for some reason, mm. um, <laughs> if they've got that, then you could recompose the shots mm. easily. Um, and if they got a, the original, like, film elements of location footage, which they superimposed dinosaurs on top of, mm. then they could, again, do it fairly easily. It'd be a good challenge, wouldn't it? As a, you know, mm. as an option. Well, I guess every year that passes, the technology to do, to sort of make the mats and things that will be ne- needed is getting more and more accessible and faster. And yeah. Moving back to the story itself, I'm interested in how it came about. We sort of hinted at the idea that the, the dinosaurs are a remit from Barry Letts, which I, I think is unlikely that um, mm. Malcolm Hulk came into the office one morning and said, I know what I want to do. <laughs> I want to write a dinosaur story, Barry. Hmm. There's two things in life I'm obsessed with, the co- communism and dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the dinosaur... You, I mean, you can tell from the way it's st- structured that the dinosaurs are the given hmm. and he's and everything else is what Malcolm wants to write about and the tension between the two. For once, 
the, they, the ideas mesh quite, quite nicely, don't they? Mm. It's not just... In my head, I'd thought that perhaps they didn't, and I was expecting that the dinosaurs... As, a, as in the story itself, they are a distraction, aren't they? But mm. I was thinking perhaps they would be in, in terms of the way it was written, that they, the, the, the first couple of episodes would be all about dinosaurs, and then we'd push that to one side and carry on with the story Malcolm wanted to tell. But he, he's, he's very game. He keeps the, a bit of dinosaur action in every episode for the kiddies while mm. he's telling the story he really wants to. But the, mm. that story itself is, is an environmental one, which makes me wonder how much of that came from Barry Letts as well. Because bar- environmentalism isn't normally one of Malcolm's themes, and whether so, whether or not he chose to write about it, um, I think we get something quite interesting because he's looking at it from various different angles: political angle, um, ethical angle. I mean, the ultimate mm. moral of the story is that he he seems to have sympathy with the environmental cause and with the characters in the story mm. who who yearn for a, a simpler, cleaner mm. life on Earth, but. I mean, it's, it's not a difficult moral position to take. <laughs> They're wrong to want to wipe out millions of human lives to get that. Mm. Yes, I think, we can, I think we can all agree with that. It's not entirely clear why they have to either. I mean, in the end, they just go back in time. And you wonder why they couldn't just do that. You know, why did they have to wipe out millions of people to bring the, fu- the, you know, the past forward when they could just, you know, send everyone back? But anyway, hey-ho. Yes, that's... Yeah, um... As usual, it's the politicians sun. for you. <laughs> <laughs> They're doing the same behind the white, aren't they, at the moment? <laughs> yeah, was I? Did I? I didn't miss any aspects of their plan, did I? What What was the point of the dinosaurs <laughs> as a distraction? They had a fully functioning time machine. Were the dinosaurs yeah. was bringing dinosaurs into the present? They wanted to clear London, didn't they, for some reason? Can yes. anyone remind me I th- why? I think for access to the bunker and the nuclear. The uh, nuclear generator, right. if okay. I recall That's correctly. That's fair enough. That's uh, and also, I guess, because they wanted... There was a sort of area in which people would be taken, and they wanted to make sure that everyone was in that area, and nobody mm. else was, I suppose. Right. Uh, yes, because there's a line in the last uh, in the last episode about um, when Finch doesn't turn out because he's been temporarily mm. inconvenienced, they, they're talking about whether to launch it, and they say, well, mm. he'll be within the... You know, within the scoop area or the, within the mm. protection field. It does sound a bit like it. Just sounds like um, if you were like you know the bad guy, you know, at the heart of all this, at the beginning of this project, writing it out in a series of bullet points. This is what we're going <laughs> to do, and you try and sell it to your like colleagues. I mean, surely everyone's going. Um, that sounds fairly implausible. But, but okay, fine, we'll give it a crack. <laughs> yeah, well, first of all, bring some dinosaurs in, and then we're going to go to that bunker, and then, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's brave. <laughs> Bold movement yeah. of dinosaurs. So, there's a lot of interesting, what, diverse people, but diverse cast of characters involved in this plot, yeah. this coup. Mm. I mean, there's represent- representatives of all the people who I suppose would have to involve the politicians, the military. Do you think it's at all inspired by a, a real-life political atmosphere in the early 70s. There, there was that mad army chap who wanted to stage a coup, wasn't there? And I, know he, I don't think mm. his plan involved dinosaurs, but... Yeah. There, <laughs> <laughs> well, this was... I was, I was going to say that this is... Um, the thing that struck me with this is this is really um, Doctor Who's answer to all of those... Um, the Parallax view, mm. all the President's Men, those kind of Alan Pakula conspiracy 
thrillers um, in some ways. I was thinking there's a mini genre here because there's this and there's robots. The following season, mm. they both tr- they both go down this oh, kind yeah, of, of course. kind of route of like the paranoid conspiracy thriller thing, and I suppose there's a slight uh, you know possible slight criticism to be levelled at this that basically it's a conspiracy in which everyone is. It's not so, so much a, who is who is involved because everyone's involved apart from the yeah. regular characters, and then one of the regular characters is as well. As I, I don't know. I don't know if that's supposed to be making some sort of point. Well, who can you trust? Nobody. Mm. Or if it's just that, as I was saying earlier, he's he's really trying to keep the story going, um, mm, never yeah. letting it flag. So every time there's a possibility of a dull moment, he reveals that somebody new that you thought you could trust is a mm. member. Yeah. Unless yeah. I wasn't paying attention, and I, I admit I was, as usual, only watching it eighty-five percent, um, concentrating. But some of the reveals to the audience of who is in the conspiracy seemed a bit underwhelming uh, mistimed yes, you know yeah. you just cut mm. to a scene with the baddies and suddenly there's somebody new that stood there and you think oh he's in it as well is he and it mm. never half the time it didn't really seem to be set up the way you'd hope including mm. the big reveal of mike yates i think so I, I could maybe i wasn't paying attention i think that's just maybe the sort of thing that happens when people write these things quickly you know where you were just one or two drafts so mm. the other thing i was going to say so we've, we've got a variety of the nobility, the top knobs of society organising this conspiracy. Mm. The people they're bringing with them, who are the people that they, again, I'm not entirely sure why, have decided to pretend that they're on a spaceship heading to a new planet. New Earth, by the way, did you catch Mm. that? Yes, yeah. They are a bunch Mm -hmm. of middle-class idiots, uh, basically. Is this where Doug Adams gets his idea from? (laughs) From the Hitchhiker's (laughs) Guide to the Galaxy? (laughs) I I haven't thought of that. You what? I was just going to say, I hadn't thought of that one, but there's a certain resemblance to um, Enemy of the World in here as well. Oh, yeah, yes, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yep. Mm. Yeah. And um, these middle-class idiots, I'm sh- I think this is something that Malcolm Hulk must have enjoyed writing. He seems, as a bit of a class warrior himself, I mean, you know, it's, it's quite a mild-mannered class criticism for a paid-up member of the Communist Party that these middle-class people are well-meaning but extraordinarily gullible. Mm. But he has a lot of fun with the scenes where we first meet them, the... Um, the beardy writer and mm. the oh was who's this Carmen Silvera play um some sort of minor she's aristocrat. a lady she's a minor minor arista or some sort yeah. isn't she now they're an, yeah, they're an interesting there's nobody working class that seems to join their cause I don't mm. know why that is later on there's, there's there's maybe there's maybe a guy towards right at the very end who's sort of a bit less plummy than the other ones but yeah it's mainly well mm. yes um <laughs> Relatively, but still in terms of 1970s TV, he's clearly still middle class. The only working class people are the looters at the beginning. Mm. And s- yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you knew that because they had flat caps and Cockney accents, of course. Doesn't Pertwee have fun? I think he gets a couple of different moments to do funny voices here. He does indeed. And it made me think it's funny that they kind of left it quite late. Voice, in, yeah. They kind of left it quite late in his run to... Mm. Let him go loose on the silly voices, considering I that think, was what he was... I think when you watch known. it through in order, he he mellows... Never mind his hair getting more and more bouffant each season. Yeah, we know. But he, I think his characterization <laughs> mellows so much. You know, what if you go straight... If you juxtapose a story from season seven with one from mm. 11, the contrast is extraordinary. Mm. There's loads of moments where <laughs> he's written... This, his doctor's still saying the same paternalistic, slightly harsh things to people. But rather than barking them 
as he mm. used to. He's now saying it with a wink and a and a nod, and yeah. and he's turned into cuddly, cuddly Uncle John. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's a bit more like yeah, Spearhead. Spearhead. There's an awful lot of that in it, and then almost immediately, it's completely excised, mm. and and this is sort of when it starts to come back again. Well, there's a there's a whole discussion in itself that they, they get a certain characterization in his first story, which they then lose and have to find again, which is exactly what they do with Tom Baker. Hmm. You've got the, the late period Baker and Robot, which then disappears, and then for three years, and then gradually... <laughs> mm. Oh, it's gone quiet. No, I agree. I agree with you. I think it's quite right. But these, these are actors who are playing the same part for you know many years, aren't they? Five and seven, respectively. So I guess they evolve as actors and people as well. And so the writing may stay fairly similar, but how they actually bring it to life will mm. change. You know, Tom Baker's very different, isn't he? In his first three mm. seasons to the rest. Mm. But you're right, mm. that first story is a bit more like how he is later. I have just thought of a possible explanation. Spearhead from Space and Robot are both famously produced by the previous production team. Yeah. Mm. So maybe the incoming producer, uh, Derek Sherwin, cast... Pertwee, yes, and possibly he, yes. he thought he was going to play it funny, so they wrote it more yes. that way, and then the new, mm. and then they changed it from story two onwards. Same thing could well mm. have happened with Terence Dix and Barry Letts casting Tom Baker, thinking he'll play it this way, and then from story two onwards, Philip Inchcliffe had a completely different idea. Apologies mm-hmm. to everybody out there who already knew that that <laughs> I've only just discovered it. I'm so I'm so sorry that I'm you're mm. seeing my me learn these things in real time. It's painful, isn't it? <laughs> with with Pertwee, with Pertwee especially, I think there's um, there's also the issue that he was famously fairly, you know, I believe he was famously fairly insecure about about doing a straight acting job yep. when he when he took the job, and so therefore he maybe his instinct was to keep it more buttoned down at mm. the stars, and then then once he you know as he became aware that he was a it was a hit, and um, he he relaxed more into it. And of course, this is the first episode where we have the Hoomobile, which is another of Pertwee, <laughs> you know, another Pertwee indulgence being. Um, mm. Although I guess we'd had the we'd had the quad bikes or whatever in um, or the tri- tri- trikes earlier, hadn't we as well? What was that? Um, what was that Land Rover chase all about? Around oh, when that's the <laughs> yeah, that's the only really bad pad- paddingy bit, isn't it? I think. Reminded me a bit of the um the bit where with um Tyler in, <laughs> in, in three doctors where he, where he runs around for five minutes and then comes back and says, "Well, that was a waste of time, wasn't it?" <laughs> <laughs> um, so, hmm. before we move on, is there anything else to say about um the comparisons with our current deserted environment, or? Well, where are they putting those eight million people? Is what I want to know. <laughs> mm. I mean, they, they seem they seem to have evacuated the whole of London, but that's a lot of people. Leeds, presumably. <laughs> you know, that's the plan later. Well, Harrogate's where they've taken. I mean, well, I don't think I was going to say, as, as you know, naturally as a Yorkshire nationalist, you've got to say, well, finally, governments in Harrogate. So, mm. there's, so there's something. But <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it, it does. It feels like. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, who, who would want to go into the details of it? But it feels like that's a lot of people to shift around. Mm. Mm. Thought-provoking. To be fair, I mean, I guess it's for, for like for the for the budget and the how, and, and the production context of making it in the nineteen seventies. I guess having a deserted London was a lot easier logistically than having a, the kind of uh, lockdown 
London that you get in <laughs> turn left, isn't it? Where you have a, an yeah. awful lot of extras, a lot more complexity. Mm. Um, it's simpler just to kind of go completely the opposite direction, have it completely deserted. Mm. Mm. And they do a surprisingly good job. I mean, it must have got up extraordinarily early in the morning because, mm. uh, you know, you get some, yeah. some pretty impressively deserted streets. Yeah, just like in Dalek Invasion of Earth. Same sort of thing, mm. isn't it? Mm. Mm. And that, that rather bizarre, rather bizarre drum. Yeah. Someone mentioned t- turn left, then didn't they, Richard? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Look, I'm, I, 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 there's a couple of things I want to say before, but then we should get on to it. So, um, I th- so, so interestingly, we, we, we get um, John Bennett in this one. We do. Um, yes. You know, it's, and, and before we get all that controversy about him yellowing up as as a Li San Chang, just disgraceful. He's carking it up in this story. He's clearly not an actual <laughs> army officer. <laughs> right, okay. Uh, mm. Moving on. Um, so the, 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 the Tyrannosaurus, uh, so why don't the bullets work? I mean, it's only flesh and blood. I mean, mm. feels a bit surprising. Good good point. Yeah, well done. I'm glad you saved True, that. True, but I, I suppose it's out of that monster movie type of, like, King Kong, you know, and, and the Chewitz monster, which the... <laughs> which the um, <laughs> <laughs> Which the uh, yeah the T Rex always reminds me of the Chewitz monster a bit. So also yeah. with unit, is it just the standard thing that the bullets never work? Yeah, that's yeah. also true. Yes, <laughs> the poor guys yeah. they fire away. You know, <laughs> today it will work. No, <laughs> never does. So also the the space thing. I mean, it's it, it, it's a brilliant twist. But but also it's it's undercut immediately in the sense that in the same shot you, you see the space bit you also see Sarah with her bandage on so so they're obviously giving the audience a clue straight away that you know what the resolution of that's going to be hmm. so that's, that's quite interesting. Yes, I think. Well, Did anyone else spot Jeremy Corbyn having a cameo <laughs> <laughs> on the spaceship? Yeah, I have to look out for him. Hmm. <laughs> He did the right thing in the end and stood down as well, didn't he? Mm. <laughs> and and Benton, I, I want to say some. I just want to say Benton. I think has a fa- it's a fantastic role for him in this. Mm. And and after being a bit cruel about John Levine in the last time we looked at him, I thought he he, he did a really good job with it. He had that great line about punch. It's not every day you get to punch a general. Mm. And then the brigadier still listening. That was that was fantastic. That was a mm. great great bit of um scripting and acting as well that was really good it's a good it's a good strong unit st- i know some of the soldiers are looking a bit old and they can't shoot straight but the main unit family it's a, it's another strong unit story as mm. well for them mm. yes yeah, so i do like the bit where he lets where, where he lets the doctor knock him out although i, th- I mm. thought it was a bit i thought it was a bit ironic that having so go and do your do your venusian what's name on it on me and then the doctor the doctor very gently knocks him out and then still lets him apparently fall flat forward on his face. <laughs> yeah, it's a bang, isn't it? <laughs> Doesn't catch him or anything like that. He just goes down like a like a sack of potatoes, just vertically forward. <laughs> yeah. There's another. I think the. I think the, there's a scene with the brigadier and the doctor outside the tube station where the brigadier throws a bomb and then he yanks the doctor down behind the car. That's a good, good little comedy mm. bit of slapstick as well. Yeah, that was really nice. Oh, there's some very good deadpan stuff from yeah. Nick's got some good good stuff in it in this hmm. as well. Though you get that little bit at the start of episode five where where you're meant to be doubting him as well by this point. 
or at least about whether he's, whether or not he really believes that the Doctor could be could be a wrong one, which doesn't make any sense given the context of the past three four years. But um, <laughs> but dram- dramatically, it works that Benson is allowed to be the one that we know is reliable. Just last things about this, and then we should move on. Go on, Simon. But we even picks a lock the old fashioned way instead of waving the sonic yeah. screwdriver around yeah, as well. Take note, kids. <laughs> I'll quickly say that that um, uh, there's there's a line in episode two where um, John Pertwee's doctor says, "I'm reviewing the situation," and I thought now it's clear why they wanted Ron Moody for that part. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll go and think that out again. Um, <laughs> I I know what I was going. I've just I've just found it. I've been looking down my notes. Wait for the thing that I was going to say. The the end, the final payoff. Now this is coming off the back of uh, last series with with Orphan Fifty Five, and um, seeing Pertwee's little speech at the end of this, which is just like God, the third Doctor is a social justice warrior, isn't he? <laughs> Some of the, his little rants, but you know, but yes, I just thought, okay, Pertwee gets away with it. I know there are plenty of other flaws. I think the main the main issue with the any war from 55 is that speech is not earned by it, coming it at the end. It comprised two thirds of the episode, that's why. Yes, <laughs> yeah. And by, you know, it's not earned by coming at the end of a bloody good story. No. Having said which, the book, of course, that was the other thing I, I did want to give a shout out yes, to. Because that, that was what brought me to, to this story in the first place. It was a childhood favourite. Again, mm. well, very well thumbed. And um, obviously, being a Mac Hulk adaptation, it it um, has well more fun with it than perhaps the standard Turnstick's mm. transliteration of the screenplay. And I love that final scene with the Ezekiel and the and oh, fo- yeah. uh, abandoned foils, you know, when they go into foils. Yeah, so I was disappointed that didn't happen at the end of the story, but you can't damn it for that. Mm. So, Turn Left from Series 4, written by Russell T. Davis directed by Graham Harper um, and recorded presumably at the same time as Midnight. So who wants to kick us off on that? Uh, I'll just say it's, I think it's, I think it's excellent. I think it's, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Russell T Davies at the top of his game. I think it's the Doctor Who rebooted series really hitting its strides, you know, great sort of event TV, lots of energy, lots of plot. It's a real tour de force of like Russell T Davies' sort of best hits, really. Mm. You know, it kind of like picks out loads of key moments from his stories and also foreshadows things to come around Donna, mm-hmm. what happened to her, and so on. I remember watching it at the time. I watched it again recently, and it's the same. It's it's just a very satisfying, solid, strong TV drama. So you know, top marks from me. Hmm. It's certainly all that, isn't it? Isn't it interesting how some of the, um, what do we call them? I suppose the Doctor Light episodes, but um, also just the episodes which had unusual production constraints turn out to be some of the best mm. in the modern era, because presumably because it encouraged the writers to be more inventive. And this is one of my absolute favourites. Interesting, yeah, I was thinking a bit like that Mike Yates reveal. It has more power because it's paying off things we've seen over the previous four years, like you said. Mm. greatest hits of Russell T Davis but it's not just revisiting them in a corny way the mm. idea of seeing revisiting these moments and changing one minor aspect i.e. the Doctor's not there 
having set up that idea that we then see progress through them mm. and things get worse and worse and worse. It's like, isn't like a sand pit in IT terms, isn't it? We set up this parallel universe where we can see, we can just test that idea for 45 minutes. And um, the point is thoroughly proven by the end of it that without mm. Doctor Who, we're buggered. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> the working title. <laughs> I was just going to agree and say, well, this is probably a story that they could only do. Knowing this was the series was absolutely at its peak of popularity and mm. in its in its revival, and and they just happened to, possibly more by luck than judgment, that they you know they they put this out at that precise moment. And apparently, looking at the stats, this was like the fourth most watched program. Of the mm. week that it aired, and that was the that was Doctor Who's record in terms of in terms of as a weekly. You know, um, I think I think Titanic had done better, and then then the following two weeks it only built further. Yeah, because it's so reliant on on the fact that all of these things uh, that it's referencing are are moments that are popular culture moments that everyone you know enough of the people who've been watching telly for the past four years are going are going to actually remember. The rhinos on the moon and the you know and all of this stuff. So it's um it's a brilliant idea, but my god, is it dark? <laughs> I just thought that's the only that's the only other thing is God. This is yeah, it's um the fact that this is done in two thousand and eight was a different time, wasn't it? Mm. And now it's as having not watched it since I've always I've always thought of it fondly, but I don't think I've watched it since um, shortly after transmission, probably mm. repeat. And now, given that I given that I deliberately sidestepped years and years, much as I love Russell's work, I just thought I cannot cope with this. I <laughs> <laughs> hadn't thought of when that. it was on. You're absolutely right. Um, years and years is that same idea extended to mm, six or eight hours, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't, and it's brilliant. It's um, and again, it's it's very Russell in that he he always gets you know, despite the fact he's doing this big dramatic story. He's also got the personal and the silly moments, and yeah, just the things that mm. letter writers would get um, would would just have one tone throughout, and this manages to balance it so so well. Yeah, you're right, absolutely. It's the range, mm. and the, therefore it's really sort of very human because you know human beings are all you know sad and happy and cross and all at the same time about a number of different things and he captures mm. all that that human condition I think in his script so well mm. There's one of my best moments in it is um, it's sort of like two thirds of the way through and Donna Noble returns home and the whole sequence plays out just as a close up of her mum in the foreground and Donna's yeah. out of focus mm. behind talking yeah. about oh I tried to get a job I couldn't get a job and yeah. and my mum's just staring into the distance, not responding until she says, yeah. I suppose I've always been a disappointment to you, haven't I? And she just says, yeah. And mm-hmm. she walks out of frame. Brilliant. Brilliant. So understated. It's all, you know, it's just about character and relationships. Mm-hmm. You've got moments like that, tiny little, tiny little directed moments. And then big, broad canvas, you know, story worlds, lots of action. It's that mm-hmm. spread that makes it work so well. Very clever. It is eerily prescient. I mean, not for the alien invasions, but the the whole kind of, you know, England for the English thing showing its head, you know, that we've seen a little bit of in the last few years. Yep. Yeah, that's a good point. 
And I, you know, I guess it's it's the counterpoint to Stephen Moffat. You know, just this once, everybody dies. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Mm. And of course, it's you know, it's another it, it, it's another Yorkshire reference in this, uh, but not in a cosy way. Mm. <laughs> well, it's cosy. It's cosy in the sense there's lots of people living in the houses, but uh, it's not much fun. <laughs> I guess just I guess when you say just as long as everybody dies, but actually they don't die, do they? Because you could argue. That they kind of unwind that timeline. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, indeed. People never seem to die, apart from Adric. Adric is <laughs> gone. <laughs> yeah. So, Rose. I mean, we get Billy Piper back, and unfortunately, she, she seems to have Dick Emery's teeth in, which is. I, I, I don't know what, what's happened there, but um, uh, I mean, I, th- I think it, it, it comes off fine in the end, but but it's just a little bit. She seems to be sort of speaking, speaking through her teeth for some reason. I think you're talking Botox, Richard. No, she, I, don't, I don't. She think. said she had trouble finding the character again, and I think we should give her the benefit mm. of the doubt. And it was just having been doing other work for two years. You know, because she isn't Rose Tyler. It was a characterisation. Yeah, yeah. And there's quite a lot involved. It wasn't just thinking your way into Rose Tyler, it was thinking your way into the physicality and exactly how she spoke and what her shape and size of her teeth were. And it takes a <laughs> bit of effort, even for the highest, <laughs> most highly trained actor to, <laughs> to find that, that particular mouth space again yeah. after a long break. <laughs> I must apologise for, for, for bringing the tone of the conversation down. Mm. <laughs> is this, uh, are you implying this is like John, John Actor from The Fast Show? This part requires four hours in makeup. <laughs> I'm, I wasn't blowing anything. I just went off on one. No, 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 I, 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 no. I genuinely think um, she had, like yeah, you yeah. said, no, I think so she too. had mm, trouble so finding too. the character. And no, I was, can, yeah. Hmm. I love Bernard Crippens in this. I think he's, I think he's fantastic. Mm. He is. Yes, this is his. Mm. This is his big moment as well, isn't it? Really, and this is what it's been mm-hmm. leading up to. I say it with hindsight, and it wasn't leading up to it. That's not why he was cast, but um, he gets to do a, some rather more serious stuff than just being yeah, yeah. funny old Wilf. Mm. He's a very believable he... actor, isn't he? His performance he is. is very believable. Mm. Yeah. Um, and you can watch them all. I mean, the whole the cast is excellent in this, isn't it? I mean, it's flawless. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. It's yeah. such a great lineup. Mm. And Jacqueline King is fantastic. Cause, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, that's the thing. I, th- I think for all that, it's really just that first scene with Billy that, that's, um, yeah, yeah. Just, with Rose that, ab- that absolutely you just think, what the hell's going on? But then when she turns up later, you've, um, but it's partly that you've got over it and partly that it's, it just seems more measured by the mm. time she appears for the second time. You kind of forget about it. The, the, uh, the guy playing the Italian as well, I think. Mm. Uh, you know, yeah. Good, nice performance as well. Yeah, very. I say Italian. I, 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 mm. I think that's right, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, the lovely Donna calls him Mussolini. I think at one point. Right. Mm. No. Just getting to calm down. Um, <laughs> but sorry, did, did I say about Jacqueline King as yeah. Donna's mum? Did I say how lovely she is? Have I ever said that? No. You've, of course, Be, you've uh, worked with her. Yes. Uh, superb behind <laughs> behind the scenes insights. I've worked with her twice, Giles. And don't you forget it. <laughs> <laughs> no, she is so nice. You wouldn't believe mm. what an astonishing mm. performance that is. You'd think mm. she's a right old rat bag, and she's <laughs> <laughs> she's gorgeous. 
That's all I have to say. Yeah, thank you for that glimpse behind the curtain. Yeah, well, there's plenty more where that came. <laughs> Do you want to know what, what they had <laughs> had on in the buffet for lunch both days? I was with. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes, because, yeah. because we 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 haven't heard enough about about lunch and big finish over. Giant the prawns. <laughs> <laughs> what, what? Like the Invisible Enemy? Hang on, that was two weeks ago. Prawn, prawn wrapped in ganglion. Um. Uh, have we really run out of, of, of things here? I would love to say more about this, but unfortunately I didn't get round to watching it. And I know that's pathetic because it's only 45 minutes long. Mm. I thought my memories might be um, strong enough, and, mm. and they aren't. They're extremely vague. It's, it's so funny. I, I, hmm. does, every, does everybody love Donna Noble? Oh, blimey, I forgot you were, you were looking yeah. forward to tearing her a new one, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I just, bloody um, love Donna Noble. I just, I don't, I, I just don't worship at the Church of Tate, and I find Donna Noble thoroughly unappealing. I know it's acting, and you know some people think, oh, that's such a grotesque comedy character, and oh, she's so annoying. But yeah, equally to someone else, she is comedy grotesque and annoying, and that that detracted from my enjoyment all the way through that that season, yeah. unfortunately. You went in as not a fan of Catherine Tate as a comic actress, and there are. I hadn't. I barely. I, I've seen her acting and other things, doing straight roles, and she's been great. But I never really got into a comedy show. And then, just her casting, I thought, you know, that that for me was when Russell T Davis jumped the metaphorical shark. I just, I just didn't understand the, the casting. I know, I know that Doctor Who tries to be edgy and reinvent itself, and you know, throw away the mould of casting young actresses in the role of companions they'd, they'd had a long run of those and I thought oh they're trying something different here but week by week I just found the character so annoying and you just wanted her to get killed after five minutes in each episode I watched I just I just didn't I, just, I, I think I think I just that was didn't. just you Simon I yeah. feel so sorry for you I mean week <laughs> after week I was thinking what an astonishing character they've taken I, I wasn't particularly thinking my goodness, ex- how extraordinary Catherine Tate can act, because I had, no, I had no reason to believe she couldn't. But she did show new depths to mm. her talent week after week, but also they, they, they were matched, or rather she was matching, new depths to the character that Russell was giving her. And he was clearly mm. in relishing exploring what he could do. I mean, in <clears throat> after the first couple of episodes, she gets thrown in some very tragic situations, doesn't she? Mm. There's that sequence at the end of the fires of the Pompeii, I think, where she does that really, really well. You know, I mm. can't imagine anyone doing that better, really. And in this episode, there's a fantastic sequence where she's about to go back in, back in time, and they're powering up the TARDIS device, whatever it is. And mm. I mean, she's clarifying with Rose that she's going to be okay and she'll be with the Doctor, and she just looks at her and says, "I'm sorry." And you can, you know, uh, mm. that works really well. I think she really nails it. No, I, I think that's the genius of Donna Noble. You said how you've seen Catherine Tate play it completely straight elsewhere and, and that you were happy with her there. Well, I think the genius is that we get the best of both worlds. She can be extraordinarily funny right from the off with all those mm. <laughs> amazing mind sequences and partners in crime. Yeah, yeah, that's when she won me over. But she has more moments of quiet tragedy than almost any other companion, considering she's only there for, for a year. No, they, they unfortunately, over in, overindulged and uh, too annoying for me, unfortunately. Second of two is in a square hole. Well, we'll just have to put 
Yeah, chalk that down as a minority view, sorry, but, but well, <laughs> well expressed. One of the things I, I just want to say about this episode is, I think it works. We talked at the beginning about how you know it's a Doctor Light episode, so I think that definitely plays its favour because it it is more inventive, if you like, because it is telling a different sort of story. Mm. I like how the Doctor is absent for most of it and you really want him to come back and save the day and so when he mm. does come back at the end and he just walks through the curtain and says hello it really works as a nice moment but the only thing that mm. mars it for me is just before that as the as the creature falls off her back as a sort of there's a montage sequence of, of unwinding all the horrible things that have happened um and that includes a shot of David Tennant in that sequence and that always annoyed me because it's like we haven't seen him for about 30 minutes we're about yeah. to see him again walk through the door so yeah. don't show us it don't don't show us his face now it kind of slightly takes away from that reveal yeah. I think but mm. you know it's a well paced well told story mm. sure it's interesting on a similarly meta level just just um, casting back to Invasion of the Dinosaurs one of the things I had a note on was was just that the Brigadier's appearance at, I think, the start of episode two when he turns up and rescues the Doctor works on almost a similarly meta kind of level. Yes. The characters are, the characters are as relieved to see him as we are that the, the running around not being believed by soldiers mm. bit of the story is over and now we can get on with the next bit. Because it's just, just to the point where it started to, started <laughs> to test our patience with the martial law kind of element of that story. Yeah, it's funny how these things work. Uh, getting back to turn left and the other thing that I really like about it is the fact that not only does it unite all of all of Doctor Who in the Russell T Davis era but it all hinges on Sarah Jane adventures and the, the trickster or it's one of the <laughs> yes. um, one of the tricksters tricksters brigade I was always a bit disappointed not to see the trickster himself turn mm. up at some point in in the RTD era in, in Doctor Who because I thought it was a great idea whether or not it really was the Black Guardian, I remember there was sort of talk about that at the time or speculation. But it's a clever idea, just yeah, feeding off, feeding off possibilities. But obviously he decided that was too good an idea to leave to to leave to the junior spin-off, as it were, having had a couple of great great stories that they you know the best, probably the best and most interesting Sarah Jane adventure stories were the ones that involved the trickster. And sort of might have been Sarah Jane's life, and mm. uh, yeah, pull the same stunt here. Hmm. It's, it's, I mean, it's interesting to 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 ponder if there really are moments like that in in your life. You know, whether whether where it's totally binary, mm. or whether at some point, you know, it, things might caught have uh, caught themselves up again. But I mean, I mean, I guess there must be some sliding doors moments. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I don't. I don't know. I think it's a fictional conceit. Hmm. But um, oh, yes. what a small sport! <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you mention that because there was a I saw in a brief foray onto Twitter a couple of days ago. I did see a tweet mentioning someone mentioning that it was ten years to the day since Bigot Gate. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, the leaking of the microphone, you know, the the off, yeah, you know, the, oh, just some the hot mic incident with Gordon Brown that mm. you could arguably arguably say, yeah, you know, was that a turn left moment? Because that's Possibly. Well, I wish wouldn't that sure that would be a turn right moment. Mm, yes. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you win. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think in answer to that, I don't believe it. I think it was uh, that was happening anyway. Mm. Um, yeah. 
Well, it's just it was interesting. I happened to see it pointed out, and I thought it was the thing that leapt to mind when when we saw do these things Mm. really happen? We're almost back to the the fascinating discussion we had the other week. Do you remember (laughs) when I babbled on for about a quarter of an hour on um, fixed points in time? Mm. I erroneously, apologies, viewers, I said that they were invented in waters of Mars, and of course they start. Where do they start? Here, Pompeii. 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 That's right. You told so. You know, if you want to get science fictiony about it. It could be that some of these turn left moments, some of these sliding doors moments, will be, if you don't turn left at this junction, it'll get you at the next junction or the one after that, you know? Mm. If it's not this mm. tube train with the sliding doors, it'll be the next one, because that's a fixed point in time, and time will catch up with you if you try and cheat it. Mm. Mm. Is that called Final Destination? Oh, well, I haven't seen any of them. Is that what that's all about? Oh, yes, it is. Yes, I've, yeah, well, I know just of, enough yeah. to know what you mean. That's death coming for you. Yes. Yes. And if, and if you dodge out the falling death, piano, it'll exactly. But be... the train will come and get you, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It could be Ooh. the same thing, though. Same concepts. Yeah, I'm slightly disappointed life, to life find that. What I thought was a really sophisticated science fiction concept has been explored most fully in a series of schlock horror films. But, <laughs> yeah. Maybe there's maybe there's space for proper pure Chris Rage Bidmid sort of hard sci-fi version i shall start making notes you carry on while i'm making notes for that well i mean he's he's, he's still out there if you want to have a word no he's not writing mm. it i am mm. <laughs> <laughs> there is if you, if you want to get into this and this is <laughs> this is the point at which i state my claim to thinking I, I might write something on this along these lines there's a very interesting i've i've never never seen anyone work out the maths for it or anything like that but i, I think well maybe maybe it's something we actually just dreamt up myself but this whole you know the um, many worlds theory of quantum mechanics and the idea that there's all these I multiple... knew you were going to mention quantum mechanics I bloody knew it sorry multiple <laughs> universes and like every every I choice you put your doctor science hat on and I yeah. thought I know where it's going now every choice right. gives rise to I was you know gives rise right. to a whole yeah. new universe and I was thinking well yeah. wouldn't it be interesting if this was kind of powered by powered by entropy and like the closing down of you know the closing down of choices is what powers the generation oh, of these goodness. things. Oh, and, I um, sh- shivered in my back then. What a great idea. Mm. Mm. And I was thinking, because it it's kind of spins into what, what the Weeping Angels feed on and what the and what the Trickster and his minions appear to feed on as well. This, so, this clo- closing off of possibilities and feeding on potentialities. So in, just in terms of linear time, as we approach the end of the universe, free will would start to get away from us. Hmm. Slowly but yes. surely, but inevitably, mm. because there would no longer be enough energy left in the universe for us to be able to make choices. Yes, yeah. It wouldn't be able to enact the choices we want to make. Mm. I think maybe that's either the best idea anyone's ever had, or it's just a, a single short story that will be overlooked, <laughs> overlooked and forgotten. Yes, yeah. Depends who writes it. You do it, you do it Giles. I'll do it, and it'll be the short story. <laughs> you should send it into the Reader's Digest. They've got a page for people like you. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so parallels between the two stories. I mean, I, I guess we've already mentioned one, which is that you know what we see in turn left in in the sort of lead setting is the 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 obverse of of what we're seeing in in invasion of dinosaurs in London. That you know that's where all the displaced people have gone. Mm. I think in a way, invasion of the dinosaurs is plot driven, and it, the focus is on the plot. Whereas you could argue that turn left, the focus is on the characters, and it's how the characters are without the Doctor. 
So one, you get empty streets and the dinosaurs. Mm. And the other, I'm stretching it apart a little bit to make a point. Yeah. Not, yeah. So it's not as clear as this. And, and the other is more about is the people in the streets and mm. the close-ups of the people and the relationships between the people. I mean, it's not quite as clear cut as that, obviously. Yeah. But I like it. We don't. We're not going to get better than that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that was very good. It's interesting considering that um, Dinos is a is a Malcolm Hulk gig. That ironically, <laughs> ironically, Turn Left is the one that actually goes into the economics, goes into a bit of, if not quite Marxist dialectic, but it looks a bit at the economic consequences and the you know the real real world consequences of what would happen in this situation. Mm. Yeah. Whereas Dinos doesn't really do that. The people have, the people are gone and we don't worry anymore about about the logistics of where they've gone or anything like that. And obviously we're currently living through the the issue of the logistics of what happens when you get some enormously disruptive mm. scenario like that. Yeah, maybe Malcolm was ahead of his time. None of his stories really get the chance to go in, into detail in the sort of areas that would I guess he'd really want to mm. if he was given free reign. Maybe Terence wouldn't let him. Mm. No, no, no. It's just a, a girl tied to the <laughs> railway <Yes>. twacks. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've no idea what that was supposed to be. That was my Barry Letts. <laughs> if I ever work out Terence, I'll tell you. Ironically, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, the realisation of the dinosaurs, you know, the monsters of that first story, whereas in, in the second story, the monster is an invisible... Um, mm. on the back of of Donna. Uh, it's ironic, isn't it, that maybe if, if the dinosaurs had been invisible, we might have... <laughs> invisible <laughs> dinosaurs, yes. Yeah. yes thousands of them, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, talking of... Um, it's, well, it doesn't quite... It, it relates to other other sort of modern modern Who issues. It's interesting that, that I, I read regarding the title of episode one of Invasion of the Dinosaurs that, you know, the whole business of them changing it, and then it got spoiled by the Radio Times, the fact it was dinosaurs. Mm. Apparently radio, the Radio Times blew the plot to which Terence Dick said, well, they were law unto themselves, and certainly um, certainly that seemed to happen a couple of times with, with Russell, although I think the was Dalek Sec that they were that offered the, the chance. That... Oh, dear. Were, were they, were they offered the chance for cover and they yeah, they threw I away. think Russell's often his own worst enemy in that regard mm. because you know when we got the chance to, to to promote the show, you really want to do that. Mm. I mean, I'm not convinced that that not knowing that that thing was going to turn up was going to make that story that much better anyway. No. <laughs> mm. But yeah, it was a shame. I mean, cer- certainly the the you know this year when we had those you know really kind of heart stopping reveals in in. Uh, Series twelve that we knew that we knew nothing about them coming up. It it was quite impressive, and it's the first time I can remember that in a very long time of getting a complete shock. Hmm. You're about to say since Earth Shock. <laughs> oh well, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. It probably was. Yes. That's what I wanted you to ask ask Jeremy when you were on actually whether or not they they had advance warning of anything that was happening in. In uh, season nineteen, and whether whether or not they knew about the Cybermen coming in Earth Shock. Well, ne- next time you line me up with a guest, you can send me the questions as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, 
Well, but I, but I guess you know that that's that's a good example of um, of JNT sort of going against his uh, typical, you know, which would have been to try and get the the publicity, but he realizes that uh, it, it, it serves the story much better for it to be a shot. Hmm. Yeah, it's always a matter of finding a finding a balance, isn't it? Because in the hmm. in the recent series, there was obviously arguably they might have got more bums on seats if they had if they had teased if they'd shown a bit more ankle. Um, with well. regard to <laughs> with regard to the fact there was going to be some potentially mind blowing stuff coming up, but hmm. well, they sort of teased it a bit. Mm. Okay, so is is that it? Any uh, any other last thoughts, or shall we um, shall we let you go on your way? It's been good. I've enjoyed it. Okay, well, th- well, thanks. Nice to have you along. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks for gracing our humble podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. That it's been really good. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. All right. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Yeah, thanks, nice guys. To, nice to hear you. Cheers. Yeah, what? Well, I've got to finish painting this room. Bye now. <laughs> 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 See you guys. Cheers. Bye bye. That will be work. Poor bloke's got to work now. Oh, dear. Yeah. Yeah, can I just give a shout out to whoever did the write up for Invasion of the Dinosaurs on Wikipedia for a complete dick move in the um, opening paragraphs? <laughs> And and I and I quote, set in London, the series involves Member of Parliament Sir Charles Grover, and General Finch conspiring to take, to roll back the Earth and return it to a time when it was untouched by humanity. <laughs> I mean, spoilers. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> That's, that can't be accidental. <laughs> no, oh, the only dear. thing it doesn't mention is my Yates. But it's just like. I meant to say that I thought. I mean, the only thing I didn't get around to mentioning is were there too many characters because. They've got a lot of good actors, but they mm. because they're good actors, it's more conspicuous that they don't all get much to do, like Martin Jarvis in particular, very little. Mm. But um, again, I, su- I suppose, like Andrew was saying, it's not so much about the characters, that story, is it? It's more plotty. So he needs a, he needs a constant su- supply mm. of um, traitors mm. to fuel but the I, conspiracy. But I do, like the, I do like the characters, though, because each of them has... Mm. A reason to be there. I mean, they're not just, as in some of the stories in this era, you know, a bunch of people with with kind of ill discerned motivation. You've you've got either people who are really who really believe in in the the movement, or you've got people who are hoping to gain something from it. You know, you've got the disgraced scientist who's well, I don't know what he hopes to 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 to, to win back by this, but he's he's obviously thoroughly naffed off with everyone else, and so yeah, you. You do kind of get to see that each of them has a slightly different motivation, but but a, but a reason to be there. Yes, yeah, it's, that's what's nice. That it, and it's yeah, and the, their particular ethics about how they will how they will do things. That Grover is always remains that his his ethics won't. He's not going to shed blood over mm. this. Yeah, quite how he reconciles that with the actual ethos of, of the master plan itself. Yeah, I think. I mean, maybe I did it a disservice because he's. Because he doesn't have to see anyone die, they just sort of get raised. They never have existed. Mm. He's almost able to fool himself into thinking that's not the same thing. Yes. So, mm. typical politician. Mm. <laughs> and, and also Ruth. I mean, she. So, so she is. In, in theory, she's one of these idealistic types that are on the spaceship, and yet she, you know, she doesn't have any 
problem in, in uh, bumping off Sarah if that's what it takes. Mm. Oh my so, god! I, I, damn it! I wish I'd made. I wish I had made my notes when I was watching it because that's one of the things I was going to bring up. Yeah, well, we can bring it up now. I mean, with Malcolm Hulk being a very political animal, one of the sto- questions is: Does you know, just in passing, do the ends justify the means? And mm. she seems like such a nice man. Lady Carmen Silvera, a nice man. <laughs> she seemed, yeah, she was very nice and calm and reasonable. She's like a nice boy. But, it's, yeah, yeah. but I mean, all the stuff on the spaceship, which I didn't really talk about much, involves what's the room that they get sent to for education, re-education, the reminder room, the reminder room. Yes, terrific. That's yeah. I mean, we've seen that many, many times, haven't we? In these sorts of stories, reminder—that's a bit of euphemism, political mm, yeah. double talk. It's a very, yeah, a very nice... She may need another spell in the reminder room, and if the reminder room isn't enough, she's a disruptive element, mm. she'll just have to go to avoid mm. bringing down the whole yeah. community, spreading her seditious ideas, mm. or anti-seditious. Mm. <laughs> she's not seditious enough. <laughs> Worthy yeah. of Orwell, I think, that, reminding. She needs, yeah, remi- very. She needs reminding. Um, mm. So, like I say, the constant spread of ideas, we get the conspiracy stuff and an Orwellian set-up, but from the point of view of people who think they're doing good. I mean, in terms of stories mm. where the villains aren't just twirling their moustaches, they generally think they're the heroes of their own story. This, mm. is, not, this is a prime example of that. Yes, yeah. Mm. Apart from the general, they do all seem fairly calm and reasonable, don't they? Including the middle-class idiots who aren't on their B-arc. Mm. <laughs> and they no doubt think that the millions of people who will never have existed when they roll back time are are not collateral damage, they won't see it that way. They'll see it that they've done them a favour. <laughs> not having to live their miserable lives in this polluted mm. this polluted earth. Mm. So it really is a one the pushing the idea of Yeah. I mean we we don't I guess we don't quite understand what they're gonna do when they get there. I mean are they gonna have to start out with just, you know, axes and I mean how far are they rolling technology back? It would be mm. nice if some if they'd had that discussion, if the doctor had had a chance to confront those people and say, Well just just what is it you think you're going to be doing when you get there, you know? Because mm. I don't imagine these yeah. people they have all obviously come from very comfortable Yeah, homes. yeah. Mm. If if it, they'd gone the full Douglas Adams then they would be an another they would be taking the working classes with them. They would be taking people to do the hard work with them. Mm, they're not yeah. going to be... <laughs> I think they're going to be in for a rude awakening, or would have been, mm, if they'd yeah, arrived, without, yeah. the, ser- well, without the servants and the help. Mm. Yeah. When, when, did, when did the good life land on us? Ah, Stuff yes. like that. I was just thinking of the, the whole self-sufficiency. maybe? Mm. 75, 76, something like that? Well, I guess that slightly like middle-class hippie self-sufficiency thing was... It is. Maybe in the again we don't get any hint of it in the story, well, but just thinking we've got about it in the, we've got it in the Green Death. It's like the third series of Reggie oh, Perrin. Oh, of course, yes, um, yeah. With yes, mm. better life of, of Reggie Perrin. Yeah, I guess mm. it's like people just generally going off to um, kibbutzes or whatever. Mm. Um, mm. It's a bit survivorsy. Mm. Survivors yeah. is not people who've chosen this lifestyle, but it's exploring. It was something in the air, wasn't there? Mm. Yes, yeah, Fernando. <laughs> <laughs> Well, certainly you've had all that, um, well, the, the yeah. environmentalism boom of the early 70s. Yeah. I'd, so that is what I like about it. It's Malcolm Hulk's, whatever inspired him to write it, it's his take from mm. his political angle rather than a purely ideological ang- angle. Mm. It's This environmental idea is all very well, but take a step back. Mm. And I think he's personifying the problems he sees with it in terms of these people having a... A badly thought through plan 
mm. overcomplicated, too many dinosaurs, and they haven't really thought about who's <laughs> who's going to be doing the hard work when they get there, mm. and who suffers for their own ideological purity. Mm. But no, econo okay. no economics, which is where we started with this mm. digression. <laughs> good. No, I think that's good. That's, that's another sort of five minutes we can we can slot, I can slot somewhere yeah. into. I'm annoyed at myself for not making making enough proper notes because there were I found it absolutely fascinating both in terms of what we got and what we didn't get. Hmm. Yeah. No, I mean I I absolutely agree with your assessment, which is which was that it was six episodes that didn't feel like six episodes i mean it felt it felt you know faster and fresher mm. than some four parts that did uh, plod around and get nowhere mm. there's, there's a lot in it mm. and it's, that was something i it seemed like a genuine discovery for me i didn't feel like i'd ever heard anyone refer to it in those terms before but really com I mean, even compared to some of hulk's other stuff like colony and space stories where oh. <laughs> <laughs> which feel more like 15 episodes mm. <laughs> Yes, as you say, it's funny how the, there are various things that you think are cliffhanger-worthy that are slightly thrown away, and I'm wondering whether this is the thing that... Didn't Terence... Is that in... I can't remember where that is, but someone, and I think it might have been Terence, espousing the dramatic W of, <laughs> of you know, theory of writing, of writing Doctor Who, where you sort of build to a... You start mm. big, you know, slow down for a bit, and then have a big peak in the middle, and, and I was thinking, well, this feels like a and yeah, and the fact that the the fact that the whole T Rex breaking loose of its chains thing isn't mm. a cliffhanger completely caught me by you know, caught me by surprise, having not having not mm. watched this for a few years. I was thinking, well surely that's a cliffhanger. And then mm. I yeah, in, in episode one it's funny that the pterodactyl attack is not you know, we we have that and then we but we still then wait for the build up of the of the dinosaur cliffhanger and the, the way that that the way that the first thing is first episode is mm. set up with with them we have lots of references to you know we have sighting, <laughs> we've had another sighting of one of them it's just like yes. it's like a tennis it's like a Terry Nation Dalek story isn't it and have lots of people <laughs> running around referring to them right although at least in this case they did actually try and take the um, take the dinosaurs out of the title mm. unlike Dalek stories yeah yeah, and there's a moment that's sort of halfway through episode four where the Doctor's found the underground base mm. uh, and he's been down into it. And you think, well, how how can we get another two and a half episodes out of this story? Mm. And yet, yeah, I mean, the the Land Rover scene ex accepted. There's not there's not an awful lot of runaround. I mean, they, there are two or three nice little plot, plot twists that keep us going until the final denouement two, two episodes later. Mm. Mm. I don't know. Cut that bit out, it's irrelevant. <laughs> Unless you think it's it's incredibly perceptive and fascinating, in which case keep it in. Go on, Pop. What? No, no, I was just, um, yeah, I was just going to butter Andrew up, but I've decided not to. <laughs> <laughs> no. Is this actual dialogue from Turn Left in your usual style? It is. Oh, right, mm. okay. I mean, well, it always is. I mean, because, you know, why would I bother to write anything oh, God, new no. when, 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 when most of it, you know... When it so, writes yeah, so itself. So most of it is. <laughs>